This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, listen for my name. The 90s were a strange time if you were queer in America. Never before had there been so many zines, presses, activist organizations, bars, clubs, parties, parades. Even the most mainstream of pop culture seemed to be on board. Tom Hanks accepted his Academy Award for playing a gay lawyer in Philadelphia, and Ellen DeGeneres, then at the peak of her popularity, went on Oprah and came out. But it was also a decade of extravagant homophobia. Republican senators called gay people, quote, degenerates and weak, morally sick wretches, unquote. The 21-year-old student, Matthew Shepard, at the University of Wyoming, was tied to a fence, tortured, and left to die. And in between, tens of thousands of mostly gay men died of AIDS. And it's during this decade, the 90s, that the first conference for LGBTQ literature was organized outright. It was held eight times and attracted both the biggest names in queer literature as well as up-and-coming authors, plus an audience of people happy to find a home for themselves and their letters. Now there's an anthology titled Outright, The Speeches That Shaped LGBTQ Literary Culture. The anthology does a great job bringing to life moments that would have otherwise been lost to history. Judy Gran reminding the audience that the roots of queer culture go back millennia. The playwright Edward Elby kicking up a storm, complaining that as a white Protestant man, he was in fact the minority. Allen Ginsberg going on a tear against the FCC's upcoming decision to ban swear words on the air. Plus, poets like Melvin Dixon, Essex Hempel, Cheryl Clark, Christos, and many more writers of all stripes talking and reading and singing on the outright stage. I recently sat down with the two editors of this collection, Julie Enzer and Elena Gross. Here's our conversation. First of all, I just wanted to know, like, how did this project even come to you? Because as I understand it, neither of you attended the conferences, right? That is correct. I mean, you were too young, Elena. <laughs> yeah, the first conference was the year I was born, so oh. I was not in attendance. <laughs> so I don't know who wants to start, whoever makes most sense, like who had it first, basically. Um, so I had the good fortune when I was researching for my dissertation, lots of women involved in the women in print movement and the women's liberation movement gave me their archives as they were trying to clear stuff out. They did not regard them as archives. They regarded them as like, here's some stuff from back in the day that you might be interested in. And one of the things that came to me as a part of that were two or three of these white tapes from the Outright Conference that were conference recordings of workshops and of keynote and plenary speeches. And I did not have a cassette tape recorder for a while, then finally had one and listened to them a little bit and was always fascinated by it and thought this would be a great book. Like these speeches seem like they have something to tell us today, even though they were now 20 and 30 years ago. So after I finished my dissertation, that was on my mind. And then I had the good fortune to go to the Queer History Conference out in San Francisco, where Elena was on a panel. Yeah, so E.G. Crichton, who is an artist and also was one of the publishers of Outlook, the Gay and Lesbian Quarterly, she had put together a project in which she invited artists and scholars and activists Uh, she matched each one of us with an old Outlook issue, and we were asked to respond. So the issue that I received, I believe it was issue 18, and what struck me the most was these ads for the first outright conferences in San Francisco in 1990. And I just kind of wrote this essay, this piece responding to it, just imagining what it could be like to be in this powerful but also fantastical space of just of queer writers. And through that project, I found um, recordings on YouTube of 
different plenary sessions. I looked up speeches from the conference that first year and, you know, kind of wrote about the importance that this conference had and how amazed I was that I hadn't heard of it prior to being invited to work on that project. And so for the Queer History Conference, EG was like, I'm putting together a panel. I would love for you to be part of it. And so I did. And Julie was in the audience. And I feel like there was like this sparkle, this gleam um, in her eyes. And we just kind of connected. And she says to me, you know, this could be a book. And I think I was sort of like, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. Um, see yeah. you around. Um, <laughs> but sure enough, a couple of weeks after that into the summer, she gave me a call and said, no, really, I think this could be a book. Would you be interested in working on this? That is so interesting, especially, Elena, because you mentioned that you were born in the year that the outright conferences got started. And so I wonder also what that was like for the two of you. There's almost a generation between the two of you, right? Uh, I don't know exactly how old you are, uh, Julie, and I don't mean to ask, you know, but uh, in a sense, I am asking, can you give me a ballpark range? Like, Had I not gone to college, it is it is true, Elena probably could have been my daughter. So I suppose <laughs> that qualifies as a generation between us. Certainly a queer generation, I would say, you know, yes. like queer time, I think right. sometimes is a little more elastic. Yes. So, yeah, I think so. But I never thought of Elaine. I just want to say, though, I never think of Elena as a daughter or as a younger generation. I always think of her as a comrade, as somebody kind of interested mm-hmm. in the work. And so that's much more so I'm I'm 52, much more so than any hesitancy to reveal my age. I yeah. just have that sort of always, I think, queer chafing against traditional generational organizing. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to make like some sort of weird daughter mother dynamic between the two of you. The only thing that I'm interested in that is that the 90s are by some measures not long ago at all. Mm -hmm. And by others, like especially if you look at the cultural context in which we live and in which we organize, you know, like there was no I mean, there was Internet but there was no social media. Mm-hmm. Everything happened offline, you know? And so I'm wondering, like, while you were digging through these tapes and going into archives and rummaging through people's, you know, stuff, Julie, as you said, what most marked you about, like, how different the 90s were in terms of what it meant to be queer then? Maybe, Elena, you can start. Yeah, I mean, I think, for starters, I think the first thing that really struck me was how the process of working on this was taking place in that, you know, Julie and I were meeting over Zoom and pouring over these transcriptions. And it, it really just, yeah, I think it really just struck me how at this time that the conferences are happening, this sort of ability to collectively organize across time and space was just so much different. And I think that's one of the things that ultimately made the conferences so special is that this was an in-person gathering of all of these writers who some of whom were familiar with each other's work, some of whom weren't. And were so it was both, you know, meeting of colleagues, but also meetings of fans, like people who were genuinely fans of one another um, in this way that is very different than sort of a lot of the parasocial relationships we have now because of social media. And that just seemed really different and special to me. And I felt like as I was, you know, as I was listening to the tapes or reading through these papers and thinking about the things that, you know, these individuals were grappling with, especially the early years of the conference, specifically the devastation that the AIDS crisis was having on the queer literary community. I was just struck by how many similarities, um, how much hadn't changed, actually. And yet how much I am clearly in in my life and my work now felt like it was being birthed at this conference. You know, like this was like creating this world that allowed uh, that allowed someone like me to exist so many years later. Even though I was, you know, just a twinkle in my mother's eye, probably when yeah. when this was taking place, it felt like, I don't know, like something shifted and was allowing the space for a later Elena to, and in so many other people to emerge and to do this kind of work. So it felt like, both looking back, but also somehow being very grounded in the present and also just imagining what the queer future of literary culture will ultimately be. Julie, I'm going to go to you in a second, but Elena, I just want to pick up on that because I think it's so, it's such a remarkable moment, I think, for all of us when we discover a lineage where we didn't know there was one. Right. And I'm just wondering, 
can you give me an example of of something where you were like, oh, this created what I am now stepping into? I mean, there were so many moments. I think Dorothy Allison's speech, there was so much in that speech that I saw myself in. But then there were also, you know, the lesbian and gays descent of Edward Albee's speech and sort of like this idea of, unfortunately, how much uh, division that there still is in certain ways between queer people of color and mainstream mm. white queer culture. Um, but then there are also like funny moments, like a moment that I refer to a lot is um, in Nancy Bariano's speech in which she's talking about this new gay kind of publishing world and a warning against certain pitfalls that she sees um, happening in sort of the mainstreaming of queer culture. And she specifically calls out Ellen DeGeneres as sort of like, if we make this person our spokesperson, we have done a grave disservice to everything we're doing here. And I was just like, oh my God, this is right at the foresight. This exact critique is like finally coming home to roost in who could have known? And I think that, what year was that, Julie? I think that was like 97, maybe? I think it was 97. Wow. And so in reading things like that, I definitely, while I was working on this project, was like, this is definitely right place, right time for me and for the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Julie, what about you? Like, you were more present for the 90s, but still it can feel like an alien time, right? Like what marked you most is like, oh yeah, that was what it was like then. You know, I think the 90s, I was working for a good part of the 90s at a gay and lesbian community center in metropolitan Detroit and involved in gay and lesbian activism in a variety of different ways. But, you know, there's just, there's something about this conference that really sparkles in the way people came together and in the relationships it enabled seeing bits of literary history on stage. I mean, like one of the, if I could go back in time and experience any one of the events at this conference, Mm -hmm. one of the things I would want to be at is this public conversation between Minnie Bruce Pratt and Leslie Feinberg. We're going to be reading to each other from our work uh, I'm going to be reading. Leslie Stonebridge Blues is out, and Leslie is working on transgender warriors. Um, Minnie Bruce, they were just releasing She, He, the memoir that she wrote about the early years of her relationship with Leslie. And when it's released, they've only been together a couple years. And there's this, you can hear it in the tape of it. There's this electricity between the two of them. So we walked by a corner where these cops were laying into a homeless man, and I stopped and mouthed off to the cops. And they started coming at me with their clubs raised. And suddenly I felt things well up in me I thought I had buried. I stood there remembering you like I didn't see the cops about to hit me, like I was falling back into another world, a place I wanted to go again. And suddenly my heart hurt so bad, and I realized how long it had been since my heart felt anything. I need to go home to you tonight. I can't, so I'm writing you this letter. Standing in the pit of the auditorium, you were someone I don't know yet. Debonair in silky shirt and tie, hair clipped close almost as skin on your fine-boned head. You read a story about the bar raids, a night scene on the street between the butch just released from jail and the woman who has waited for her, smoothing her shirt, mourning over the indelible bloodstains that will never wash out. As you read, I am the woman who touches the shirt, startled to be so translated to a place I think I've never been. In the dim light of the auditorium, you see me standing in your past. Your message the next morning says, so glad to see a femme from the old days. I write to correct you to explain about my lesbian feminist political coming out. (laughs) 
In return, your letter says of me listening in the auditorium, it was as if we were in a slow dance as I read. I don't understand what you mean. Me, who begins to wander off in my own direction, halfway through every dance with a lover, my attention and my confidence failing. I reply dubiously, hopefully. I have so much trouble following. Perhaps I haven't had a skillful enough partner. <laughs> 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 and I just feel like the whole ballroom must have been just taut with this sexual energy between them as they're they're reading from their book like directly there's very little conversation but it's just so electric um, the other moment is at the beginning of Melvin Dixon's speech, uh, yeah. which is an incredible speech. And the opening, you know, like we captured it in the way that we capture song lyrics in print. Um, but on the audio, Dixon sings. And it's it's like midway through the tape, you listen to this long introduction and they do announcements. Some folks from New York City need rides home and think that some of you from New York City might You know, again, like, nobody can check in on social media and get, like, the room changes for everything <laughs> or the cancellation, like, Vibe this checks. speaker has canceled, <laughs> you know. Like, there's all of this other sort of conference apparatus that is on the tape. And then what's really just majestic is imagining Melvin Dixon standing up there and beginning not by speaking, but by singing to the audience. Um, Dixon knows, he knows how very sick he is. He dies, I think about six or seven months later. When he calls me, I will answer. When he calls me, I will answer. When he calls me, I will answer. I'll be somewhere listening for my name. I'll be somewhere listening. I'll be somewhere listening. I'll be somewhere listening for my name. I'll be somewhere listening. I'll be somewhere listening. I'll be somewhere listening for my name. And it's an incredible moment. And that moment comes up a number of times in people's responses to the conference. It's one of the moments that sticks out most clearly in a number of people's minds and, and the emotion that it brought up for everyone in the room. And people who were like, I wasn't in the room at the time, I had gone down the hall, and then, you know, who, who were even now, 30 years later, can't believe that they missed it. It's, it's that moment that they can't believe that they were, you know, in the bathroom or whatever, you know, it's, and so I think that yeah. speaks to also just how powerful and how palpable the energy of these conferences were, that they're, they're, they're moments that people remember really fondly, but they're also moments that people have extreme FOMO about having missed, um, but feel connected to anyway, which I think is, and I, you know, as one of the people with the ultimate FOMO, cause I wasn't, you know, like I, I feel that I feel that in working on this project of, um, I feel connected to it, even though I very much uh, missed out on on some of those moments. 
when I was reading like the ways that people describe this conference, one of the attendees described it as dizzying, all-consuming, exhilarating, a near-perfect manifestation of an ideal of community that I have ever experienced. And that is something that I wanted to ask you about too, because that ideal of community, it feels like that ideal was simultaneously attained and not. Because like, yes, this was this historical coming together of fans and writers and people in this one space who had never really met each other often. But there was also a lot of people felt excluded in various ways, um, especially after Edward Albee's woe me white Protestant man speech. And I was just wondering if you both wanted to talk about what it was to encounter people's frustrations. Uh, Julie, maybe you want to start? Sure. One of the things that's striking to me reading this is the very different conditions that lesbian, gay, bi, um, bisexual, transgender, and queer people lived in in the 1990s. We alluded briefly to the AIDS crisis, and that's so palpable in all of the papers and all of the stuff surrounding the conferences of people who would never speak at the conference because they died days before the conference after accepting an invitation. Um, the ways that people feared for their safety, for their jobs, for their well-being, if it was found out that they were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or queer. I think that's one of the conditions that has really changed today. And to read these speeches is to remember what those conditions were like. And then that sort of helps us understand what that beloved community was like as a place of acceptance, mm. right? To really think about what the other days of the year were like, and then to have the space within the conference. But then also the reality that the space within the conference was contested and um, contested in in a lot of different ways. We included the protest statement from lesbians and gays of African descent who are objecting to a, a really, you know, a, a speech that was was really just terrible. And I think also in some ways designed to kind of provoke sure. people. But there were other skirmishes that were important that helped people think about and understand what the stakes of community life were for LGBTQ people. There were questions about accessibility mm -hmm. um, that came up. Christos, whose speech is in the book, I think I think she doesn't say it in this speech. She says it in another speech. Like she will not include her work if she is the only native person represented. There has to be at least one other and ideally more so that this kind of tokenization does not happen in queer communities. Um, so there were lots of ways where the community was really cherished and special, but also ways where people were challenging it and wanting it to be better, wanting it to be more inclusive and more special for everyone, sort of more expansive. Elena, what was your sense of kind of the the fault lines within the community and how you experienced reading that today? There were going to be tensions. There were going to be frictions. People recognized that they didn't have a lot of time, that this space couldn't be taken for granted because it may never exist again. And so now is kind of your moment to make yourself heard in certain ways. And so Essex Hemphill rightfully critiques what he considers the fetishization and exploitation of Black gay men by the photographer Robert Maplethorpe, who is this lightning rod of controversy And so it shows these intersections of identity that can't be teased apart, that have to be talked about and have to be taken all together. And he's hissed at. The audience hisses at him. Hissed. They boo him for what he has to say. What? I didn't and know that. Wow. Yeah, it's this huge, awful, awful angry moment where the audience is appalled that he would call out Robert Maplethorpe for his treatment of Black gay men while not fully taking in the fact that Essex Hemphill is a Black gay man who will also later uh, die of complications related to AIDS. Um, this is his life. You know, and so it's those moments that theoretically on their surface have the ability to create this sense that, you know, uh, to tear everything apart. But I don't think it did. I think there were necessary frictions that needed to happen because there were these thorny bits of, of community, these thorny bits of the culture that needed to be addressed in order to 
in order to move forward. And as I think anyone looking back at a time period, at a specific time period with so much, um, you know, multiple crises at once, you also look for the gaps and anything that's claiming to represent community, you look for, okay, then who was left out of this conversation? And I think that's something that we, you know, Julie and I discussed a lot when we were putting this together, though we're seeing this kind of diversity of races, we're seeing this kind of, uh, seeming gender parity in terms of representations of both men and women in these conferences. There are also, you know, issues of access, disability, classism, you know, trans contributors. There are very few of them in the conferences and things have changed in a certain way that we now live in a culture where like you are super attuned to seeing who's missing at a time when maybe the priorities were a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But all of those things, kind of acknowledging them and really looking at them, again, are the only way to ensure that we move forward with everyone included. And, you know, I think the idea of utopia is an ongoing one. It is always in the future. It is always something to be longed for and desired for and never necessarily to be reached. And I think in that way, that's still what the conferences did. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about this ongoingness of, of utopia, you know. Uh, I was just wondering what you feel about this particular moment in time where a speaker like Judy Gran, a, a white poet, you know, because she she's basically talking about like how in her earlier days as an activist, as an organizer, lesbians were often just kind of, you know, second thought or whatever, and that she felt like she had to separate from the men, from the gay men, to organize separately, build their own power structures, power bases, and then meet again as equals at the table. And like in her speech, she talks about like how fired up she is that now the time is ripe to like organize together again and what a glorious moment that is. And then it's kind of contrasted by, yeah, as you say, you know, these people like Melvin Dixon or Essex Hemphill or the writer, you know, Mariana Romo Carmona, who who are like saying, yeah, you know, maybe the moment for like coming together again because we have our own basis of power maybe that hasn't happened for us yet maybe we're still kind of doing this uphill battle when it comes to the distribution of power um and so i'm just wondering how do you feel about the possibility of organizing together today well one of the struggles in putting together the book was capturing not all but some of these tensions and you know like Judy's speech is one part there was a not quite a protest but there was some let's just say a group of lesbians in the San Francisco Bay Area quite disgruntled about the energy that was going into organizing this conference because they really felt like women still needed to be doing things just with women. So behind the scenes, there was a disgruntled sort of sense of what is all this co-gender stuff about? The time is not here. You know, so for me, part of the book is about leaving these little breadcrumbs for people to find, to both sort of see the inspiration of like, here's something that happened that has shaped part of where we are today. But also, let's go back and look at what were these um, flashpoints about and what can we learn from them and what do they tell us about how we might think about your question today. Um, and I think that to me, one of the really wonderful things about defining broad communities is that they give us space to have dissent and for some people to say, yes, let's work on this together. And other people to say, ah, not quite so fast. Like I'm bringing this experience and I want to, you know, caucus with these people in this kind of way. We're always a multiplicity of voices with a multiplicity of strategies for what we want to do. And I think that endures today. And Our task is always to open the community wide enough that we can involve enough people and also set our intentions narrow enough that we can actually get some work done. Yeah. Elena, what about you? I guess as you were posing the question, even as you were speaking, Julie, I was thinking a lot about Sarah Schulman's most recent book, Let the Record Show, and how you know, her framing it as both a, his, you know, political history of ACT UP New York, but also as this, offering this as a guide for 
contemporary activists now. Like you basically saying you can look at the history of ACT UP to learn from it, to learn from the things that ACT UP did really well, the actions that took place. This is how we did it. This is how we strategized. You know, here's this kind of playbook. But you can also learn from the things that went wrong and the problems that arose and the splintering of the groups that then created more groups. And from basically how the whole thing ended, essentially, you can also learn from those things. And yeah, like in terms of like, let's all work together, kumbaya, we're all equal in our, you know, across this kind of marginalized or marginalization spectrum, we can now all work from that place. I don't think we're not there. I mean, obviously, people of color and specifically Black people in this country have had no illusions that racism somehow ended with the election of Barack Obama or any other moment that we want to point to as like this evidence of kind of racial reconciliation. We've always been aware that, you know, there are still a lot of we're still not speaking the same language when we're talking about racial injustice in this country. And that exists within queer community. And that is something that I have felt in my personal life and uh, work that I do. I've seen that kind of be not ignored, but kind of like, oh, we'll we'll put this on the side. We'll table this for right now. We just really need to work on this. And we'll we'll get to that later. And I think there's a lot of um, obviously queer folks of color who don't agree and so are more interested in organizing collectively with one another as opposed to kind of having to do this compartmentalizing of oneself within queer activism or within um, queer spaces. So we're not there yet. But I do agree that I think what you get from this book and what you get from from looking at the conferences in this way is you get exactly to Julie's point, you get breadcrumbs of how do we take what happened before as a model for trying still you know, trying still for a place where we can all come together while also learning from our past, looking at, you know, kind of the events of these conferences that were these divisive moments and how do we not repeat that or how do we do this better? So I don't think there's no perfect model, obviously. And I think the benefit of the conferences is that I think it shows how many people can and should be involved in creating this community. back of the book, you include like a few memories of people who attended or helped organize and, uh, you know, people who didn't necessarily give speeches. Julie, I I was wondering if you could read this one. It is on page 274 of the book. Mm -hmm. It's basically about like how the specter of AIDS hung over the entire conference. Um, And I was wondering if you can read that paragraph until the end Mm -hmm. uh, from I Remember. Yep. I remember the calling out of names at each opening plenary when we invited audience members to shout names of the dead to be remembered. But this was the easy celebratory part of what AIDS meant. More difficult were the phone calls with writers who said they were too sick to come to the conference in a few months or that they were feeling okay now but feared they'd be too sick by March to attend. Harder still were the last minute, often the day before, phone calls from friends or lovers of writers who said they were too sick or had just died. Even more painful were the notes from friends of random registrants, whose names were only known to us on checks or registration forms, who said they had died and would not be there. This starkly and frighteningly brought home the reality of what made outright great. What made it vital, especially in these dark times, was not the writers who spoke, but the enormous community that made their work possible that gave it life by accepting it into their lives, minds, and hearts. Thank you. 
Elena, I was just wondering if you can read another excerpt just so that we have, you know, one more voice about this. I was thinking of the little contribution by Joan Nessel on page 282. Yeah. I attended two outright gatherings in 1992 and 1993. I know many will speak of the excitement of being with so many other queer writers, some already trailing clouds of literary glory, but is the memory of two men that most captures what my time in attendance meant. Both writers, both dying of AIDS, John Preston and Melvin Dixon. John and I had worked over the year trying to finish up our manuscript for sister and brother, and this was a rare chance to be in each other's presence, for me to be on his home turf of Boston streets. He was surrounded by admirers, but we found time to sit on a commons bench and just hold each other. Two pornographers, he laughed into my ear. All those hotel rooms filled with dazzling writers, but I remember most this and my coming upon Melvin Dixon, the poet, the novelist, sitting alone in a grand empty room looking, it seemed to me, through walls. Writers can be isolated beings, even at grand gatherings. Outright gave us a chance to say hello and goodbye. Thank you. I thought this was so extraordinarily moving to include these memories of like how the AIDS crisis was experienced, not as this amorphous blob, but as so acutely specific, you know, sitting on a bench with John Preston or, you know, Melvin Dixon, like sitting alone in an empty room looking, it seemed to me, through walls. Writers can be isolated beings, even at grand gatherings. I thought it was so beautiful that someone captured these people right before they passed away in, in ways that were so, like the almost unnoticeable ways in which they were present and seen and loved by the people who knew them. And I, I was just wondering what it was like for the both of you immersing yourself in this material, in these testimonies, what it was like to talk about literature with so much death in the room. Well... I think working on this project in isolation at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there was so much uncertainty and every day you were reading in the New York Times that the number of Americans who had died was increasing and increasing and increasing and that the government was doing literally very, very little to abate it or to offer comfort or to offer security to the rest of us. Um, death was in the room for the attendees of this conference, but death was very much in the room in my apartment that I wasn't able to leave as I was pouring through these transcripts. And I think, of course, like, you know, I'm reading the words of these literary icons who I've admired for so long. And there's a way that their words are and have always been venerated, but really it was in thinking about the moment that I was in while reading about this time that they were in and feeling really connected in a human way. Um, mm -hmm. It's one thing to venerate a person's words, but to really see them as a human being and to see the magnitude of their life as a flesh and blood person with a family, with friends, with lovers, with memories, with, you know, fears. Um, It gave me a sense of understanding how necessary and important connecting, not just through the work that we do. Of course, the work that we do is incredibly important, but connecting to one another as individuals and holding each other close. I think that work is just as important as the words, you know, we leave behind on the page is, is how we make people feel, is those memories, exactly as Joan Nessel is describing, those memories that stay with someone long after you've passed, like how, how we make someone feel and how they understand themselves and are better themselves for having been in your presence and for having known you. That's really what it felt like the conferences did for, for the people who participate and attended. And that's really what it did for me working on this project. Thank you. Yeah, Julie, how about you? Yeah, I, you know, I, um, I think a lot of writers want 
you know, people want to write great things. People want to write masterpieces. People want to write to be the um, the Dickens or the Dickinson or the Whitman of the future. And, and that's fantastic. But I think also what books like this and pieces of writing that are more occasional pieces of writing, like speeches, like conference presentations, remind us that uh, that, that writers do a lot of work over the course of a lifetime. And a lucky few people create something that's considered a masterpiece over time. A lot more people write something that might be popular, that a lot of people like at a time, but that may fade from memory. But that the real work of being human is the same for writers as for other human beings. And it is the quality of our life and our care for one another. Um, And I felt that, you know, with the death in the room um, from AIDS, you know, and I was, as I said, I was active at this time. And so for me, in certain ways, the death in this book is um, specific and it's, tied to other people that I knew. And it's also about completing genera- completing this kind of generational work of memory. Um, so, sorry. I was not expecting that. Um, no, you take your time. Yeah. Um, but I think that's the... Um, that it shows the quality of those relationships um, and the quality of care that um, that AIDS and the broader world forced people to um, show to one another. There's something that Melvin Dixon said in his keynote address. You know, he had just lost his partner, Richard, to AIDS. Uh, he would himself died just a few months later and the last thing that he said that day on stage was you then are charged by the possibility of your good health by the broadness of your vision to remember us and I'm just wondering how how do you experience this responsibility as like keepers tellers of history you know, a history that many participants are no longer able to tell. I feel I, I very deeply worry about getting things wrong, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you, you know, the one thing about telling history when when there are not a lot of people still alive who remember it is there are fewer corrections, right? Right. So, yeah. That's, I worry about getting things wrong and not having enough people yeah. to correct. Um, yes. What about you, Yelena? What did that responsibility feel like or does it feel like? Um, I definitely feel the pressure that Julie's talking about, you know, the concern about getting things wrong, especially being a generation or, you know, we're, we're abandoning these terms, sure. but being removed in a very specific way from the actual lived experience of the conferences. But I also find it to be very, very personal work. I found I found out more about myself as a person, as a writer, as through doing this work. And I think, you know, the responsibility of remembering is not just for, I mean, of course, it's for the greater good in a certain way of wanting to introduce a whole new generation of writers to writers who should be better known today, but who aren't in large part because of the devastation of the crisis. But it's also deeply personal for me. Like, you know, it's my own history and I've learned, I've found things that I didn't realize I needed through this process. And I found that I want other people to have that same experience. Um, I take the responsibility seriously um, because it feels very personal for me. Can you tell me one thing that you discovered in doing it that you didn't know you needed? 
that I needed to that I needed to believe that there were writers who spoke as passionately and as eloquently about politics as they do about their own sex lives. <laughs> and that taking our pleasure seriously is political work, is important work, and not sanitizing queer literary production is necessary for queer liberation. Which I think I did know deep down, but it was great to have it reinforced and reiterate it so clearly and presently in the work of so many of these writers. Yeah, because it just keeps being like the same, the same wall keeps being erected. Right. Like, like the same sanitation keeps being The degenerous, being scrubbed, degenerousing you know? of, yeah. Of, oh, yeah. of everything. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Julian? What is something that you took from it that you didn't even know you needed? You know, I really, especially as I've been rereading the book in preparation to think about its release and talk about it a bit, I really have come to cherish John Preston, which has, I, I, I guess, surprised me in certain ways. I think he was one of the writers I knew the least about. And what I've taken from his work that I didn't know I needed is he has this great dog story. One of my best friends and one of the first friends I knew who had age um, raised dogs. Um, as he got age, he happened to have been a very vain and very handsome uh, His body was ravaged constantly. He used all kinds of ways to deny uh, what was going on with him. But no one would talk to him about dying. No one would talk to him about what was happening to him. And he was left with a constant search for some kind of miraculous cure or healing. <clears throat> One day after he was in the hospital, and his chaos had spread tremendously, he was brought home, and a whole group of people were with him saying, oh, this is just... This is nothing, we're going through another incident, and so forth and so on. Uh, treating a though were running cold. And what happened was that the dog um, came running to greet him as soon as she heard him come through the door. And she stopped short in the middle of the room and fell back onto her paws and whined back to herself on the floor out of the room at the very sight of him. You know, and the dog just like runs away because the dog is like, oh, no, that can't be my master. Right. Like he's that person is too ill to be in this house. Um, and it's both sad and moving and funny. And Preston's commitment to telling community stories like mm -hmm. that was really, really inspiring to me. It, through that speech, he was really one of the things he said is, it doesn't really matter if what you write lasts forever. What an honor to tell the stories that matter to your community. And that, um, that I needed to hear. anthology Outright, The Speeches That Shaped LGBTQ Literary Culture, was edited by Julie Enzer and Elena Gross. Julie Enzer is the author of four poetry collections, including Avowed, and the editor of Sister Love, The Letters of Audre Lorde and Pat Parker. She also edits and publishes the multicultural lesbian literary and art journal Sinister Wisdom. Elena Gross is an independent writer, curator, and culture critic who currently serves as the Director of Exhibitions and Curatorial Affairs at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. Together, Julie Enzer and Elena Gross worked on the Outright Anthology, each from their home, Julie in Central Florida and Elena in Oakland, California. 
the audio excerpts you heard were Minnie Prue's Brat and Leslie Feinberg reading. That audio has been saved in the archives at Duke University, used with the permission of Minnie Bruce Pratt. Melvin Dixon singing, courtesy of the Bromfield Street Educational Foundation Records at the Northeastern University Archives and Special Collections. And John Preston telling his dog story is freely available on YouTube. Just look for Outright 1990. If you'd like to know more about Outright, keep an eye on the Poetry Foundation website. They'll soon publish an essay by the scholar Eric Sneathan about what Outright meant for queer writers and queer literature in the midst of AIDS. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>